Hello, welcome everyone. Um, my name's Eliza Devlin, ACCA's Education Manager, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight at ACCA for a special masterclass, Chris Sharp on Curating, alongside ACCA's current exhibition, Dwelling Poetically, Mexico City, a Case Study. ACCA acknowledges the Boomerang as the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land on which ACCA is situated, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations and extend our respects to their ancestors and elders past, present and future and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. ACCA's masterclasses are a series of presentations designed alongside ACCA's exhibitions to cater to art and curatorial students at a postgraduate tertiary level. ACCA is pleased to present Dwelling Poetically, Mexico City, a case study, an exhibition which considers the ways artists and cities mutually inform and transform one another. Developed by guest curator Chris Sharp, Dwelling Poetically proposes a portrait of the Mexican capital through a selection of artists that live or have lived in or frequently pass through the city or while contributing to its composition. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our exhibition partners, Monash University and RMIT University, the Embassy of Mexico in Australia, Julux, Abercrombie in Kent, and our media partner, Triple R. ACCA's masterclasses are supported by the Australian Government, Catalyst Australian Arts and Culture Fund. Um, and I just want to um, draw attention to the catalogue as well. Um, it's on sale for $20 at ACCA's bookshop tonight. Um, so it's really my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Chris Sharp. Chris is a writer and independent curator based in Mexico City, where he runs a project space, Lulu, with Mexican artist Martin Soto Clement. He has curated numerous international exhibitions, including most recently Against Nature, co-curated with Edith Jurepkova at the National Gallery of Prague in 2016 and a change of heart at Hannah Hoffman Gallery, Los Angeles in 2016 as well. A contributing editor to Art Review and Art Agenda, Chris has recently, was recently appointed co-curator with Dr. Zara Stanhope of New Zealand artist Dane Mitchell's presentation at the 58th Venice Biennale. Um, tonight, Chris will reflect more generally on the subject of curating and in relation to his curatorial projects and co-direction of Lulu, a project space in Mexico City, and we'll discuss the curatorial process developing and realising dwelling poetically at ACCA. Um, Chris will speak for about 45 minutes and there will be opportunity for plenty of questions uh, at the end and I'll come around with the microphone. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Chris Sharp. Please join me in welcoming him. Um, thank you for a nice introduction. Um, great to be here. Great to see so many people. Can everyone hear me? Is this loud enough? I tend to be a soft speaker, so uh, it's a good thing there's a microphone. Um, okay, yeah, it's great to see such a nice turnout. Um, let's see if I have any wisdom about curating to impart. Uh, I'm not so sure, but I will talk about uh, this exhibition a little bit, my curatorial practice uh, in general, uh, mostly through uh, the lens of Lulu. Um, about this exhibition, I feel like I've spoken about it so much 
uh, in the past few days, uh, especially since it opened. Um, so I'm not going to speak about it that much right now. I just wanted to touch upon a few things um, that were important to me, which I think are in the exhibition, um, but maybe uh, not um, so obvious. Uh, and I guess uh, those two points, which will lead to other points, are questions of nationalism and nationality. And uh, the curator or uh, curating as an authorial position or an authori authoritative uh, position. Um, nationalism is important uh, because uh, it's something I think about a lot as somebody who hasn't lived in his so-called home country in over 15 years. I've lived in France, Italy, now I live in Mexico, so I'm always kind of this outsider looking in and I uh, and I and, and I find it hard to sympathize with uh, nationalism as a cause. Um, I think it's harder than ever, um, given the current political climate, especially in uh, countries like the U.S. I don't know Austria, uh, you know, a lot of Western Europe, so on and so forth. Um, so it's it's problematic. But uh, I think it's important in the context of this exhibition because it's an exhibition about Mexico City in which there are only three ethnic Mexicans. Um, there are artists from all over the world, uh, from Ireland, Belgium, England, uh, New Zealand, Argentina, the US, and France in this exhibition, 12 artists in total. Um, and uh, for me, thinking about this exhibition and also kind of thinking about my experience, what I think is a plausible experience of contemporary art in Mexico City and maybe any major uh, capital or global capital of contemporary art is the, the experience tends to be pretty cosmopolitan. And that's something I really try and embrace uh, in my work and in work in general. You know, it's like not thinking about things in terms of nationality and it's um, so complicated. Um, but, uh, so I, that was something I really wanted to foreground in this exhibition, something I wanted to get away from. And one of the reasons I want to get away from it is because uh, nationality is, is, is it, I see it as like one of these criterion, which is about the lowest common denominator. It's kind of like, how, first of all, how do you define it? You know what I mean? Like, you, in order to start to define it, you have to talk about what is Mexican. And then you get into like, what is Mexicanness? Um, and this is already super complicated from an indigenous point of view, from a uh, mixed race point of view, um, from where you're from in Mexico, so on and so forth. And, and I think the moment you really start to have that conversation, um, you start to move away from art. It really becomes about identity um, and nationality and the art almost becomes secondary in the conversation. And I think even more importantly than that, um, I think it's interesting, uh, if you really think about it, I think, um, I think uh, and this is maybe a bold claim, but most those artists who like, come to most represent nationality, I think often um, come to represent nationality not because, um, they embody certain characteristics, um, but 
because they they make such a, 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 like a heavy mark upon their region or where they're from that they become a cliche. So it's it's like, I mean, it's a fine line. There are certain artists, I think, who kind of conform to stereotypes, and then there are others. I think a perfect example for me in Mexico is Gabriel Orozco, probably the most famous Mexican artist. And living there for a long time, I've seen so many young artists imitate him. Um, and you, I think you live there and you see, in fact, that if he is a cliche, it's because he's so imitated. It's not because he embodies Mexicanness. So in a way, I guess what I'm trying to say is somebody like, like him, it's almost as if he is a kind of anomaly in, the, in his local context, and he's not necessarily a byproduct, a product of it, but he, in the end, ends up marking the context almost more than it marks him and as such kind of becomes a cliche. And I think this is really interesting um, because this is really rare at the same time, like those really powerful figures, um, which can become cliches, uh, I think are enormously generative, but at the same time can ultimately be limiting. Um, and I mean, I don't know if there's an exact science or formula by which they become cliches, but I think uh, they're somehow very unique, let's say, in the end. Um, so I think uh, I wanted to mention that because I think it plays a really important role in the exhibition in that I'm not trying to represent Mexicanness as such or uh, the typical scene in Mexico City. I think um, they're like any really rich scene. There are several scenes in the city. Um, composed of different uh, agents and points of view and political agendas and ideologies and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, this exhibition was very much about this idea, like really looking at this idea, of, which for me was like, what I, I perceived as a plausible way to kind of talk about a place or region. So not necessarily in terms of, um, not necessarily in terms of nationality or even uh, residency, but more in terms of like myth and legend. Like to what extent are these artists um, contributing to and being impacted by myths and legends of Mexico City? Um, uh, so that, that played a really important role. Um, and another thing I wanted to talk about with um, regard to this exhibition, um, and I'm not sure it relates to the first one, but is uh, the idea of, of curating. Um, and uh, I just like to say that I believe in curating. Like I think, um, I, and I believe in curating specifically, like on different levels, I think there are different kinds of curating, but for me and the way I position myself and organize exhibitions, I really see curating as, um, as uh, an, an authored, position, a position of, a position which authors cultural production, which participates um, in the authorship of cultural production. Uh, there's a great book um, for those of you who are studying curating. It's one of my favorite books on curating by Paul O'Neill, um, who I think is now in Finland. He was uh, teaching um, in New York for a while, but it's called something to the effect of the culture of curating and the curating of cultures and his general thesis is 
uh, he's, he's reflecting on curating since the 80s, and he kind of talks about how the curator has become a co-producer since the 80s, somebody who like uh, is a co-producer of meaning um, through exhibitions and art and so on and so forth. And uh, I think it's a really, uh, really smart um, and shrewd uh, interpretation or reading, I guess, of what uh, the contemporary curator is now. Um, it's funny, um, and I, I, I see this position and I've like come to embrace this position um, for a number of reasons. Um, I originally started curating uh, in 2006. I was living in Paris, um, and I think I'm really lucky to have kind of uh, become a curator in that context. I didn't study curating. I studied French literature. Kind of, like, I, you know, it was like a happy accident. I'm not even sure how I'm a curator. It just kind of happened. And, uh, and I think it was an exciting moment um, because I think it was a particularly open and experimental moment in Europe at that time. I think in Europe at that time, um, and maybe even to a certain degree now, uh, I think it was a special place insofar as um, the, the art scene really embraced curating as a kind of experimental mode of production. And there were a lot of curators. I had like colleagues that I looked up to um, and kind of defined myself against, like Raimundus, um, who was all over the place at the time, um, you know, from 2006 on. And then there was Jens Hoffman, who was at the ICA in London at the time, before going to CCA Juarez in San Francisco. Um, and there were, and then other figures in Paris who were probably less renowned, but also really interesting, who are kind of always uh, testing the limits of uh, curating as a format. Um, and and I, I, I didn't go to school, but I was really lucky to be exposed to all of this and to consider it um, and to kind of attempt to define my own personal cur curatorial practice. Um, in some instances, I felt like curators went too far. I felt like it was too much about curating. Like in the end, you would see an exhibition and uh, at least I would, and I had the sense that the show is all about the curator and the curator's concept or their experimental mode of curating. And I left thinking more about that than the actual art that I saw. Um, and, and I realized like this wasn't uh, how I wanted to be. Um, I, I mean, for me, in the end, um, and still to this day, like the most important thing, I, I want people to leave a show um, thinking more about the art than the, sh than the show. I mean, it's nice if they think about the show and they're like, okay, they think about the structure and how it functions or the ideas, um, but in the end, if the art is the thing that really impacts them and they leave with that. Um, so it was, it was I, you know, I think I was really lucky to kind of uh, grow up, as it were, um, in that context. And, and I feel like it's, it's, it's something that stayed with me um, and kind of helps me think about. And, and when I say that, like in terms of like, uh, as a position of cultural production, um, or I guess as an authored position, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that I think it's important 
that exhibitions have a strong sense of purpose. Like it's clear why they're there. The curatorial, the curatorial concept is strong. Um, and because for me, some of the worst shows I've seen are like when you go see a show and there's just like a bunch of shit in the room and you're not quite sure why it's there. And it just feels like really dispersed. It feels like it wants to disperse your attention. And in the end, um, it feels like the art kind of is in a way almost dismissed. Um, so it's, th this is something that's important and that, um, and that the structure of the exhibition becomes visible to a certain degree. Um, I don't, I'm, I mean, and I think this for the specific reason and that the curator takes responsibility. Like you see the curator, you almost see the curatorial hand, as it were, taking responsibility for certain decisions. Um, and I see that as almost uh, a, like a form of politics, you know, as a kind of a, a certain political responsibility. Um, and and the, the importance for me of this political responsibility is that it becomes indicative of the extent to which things are considered. Like, like it's really, ideally, um, you, you see these positions, they become clear, and the kind of uh, deliberations and decisions of the curator um, are, are obvious and uh, kind of made visible. Um, so I hope that these two things, or I think that these two things inform on some fundamental level the structure of this exhibition. Um, and how it was made from these questions of like uh, privileging a multiplicity or diversity of nationality or cosmopolitanism um, and at the same time uh, kinds of art making, modes of art making, which um, I think in many cases tend more towards the idiosyncratic than kind of socio-politically engaged uh, conceptual modes or language-based modes of making. Um, and that m my position or responsibility as a curator, as somebody who uh, is organizing objects in space, like the kind of rationale and criteria is embedded in the exhibition as well, um, to the point where it's visible, but that the work is more important. Um, so those are two things I wanted to mention here. Um, and then otherwise, I wanted to talk about uh, Lulu, this uh, project space that I co-founded with the artist Martin Soto Climent in Mexico City. I've, uh, I've curated, I, I, I'm not in, even entirely sure, I think I've curated over 70 exhibitions um, in institutions, uh, galleries, project spaces, art fairs, uh, all over the world, uh, mostly in Europe, but the United States and also Latin America. Um, and um, there are some projects I love more than others, but I wanted to talk about Lulu because somehow, I'm not entirely sure how exactly, but it feels like it's kind of be like the perfect distillation of my curatorial practice. Um, and, I, and I realize it seems, it may seem kind of absurd and ridiculous, especially in the context of Melbourne, since there are so many amazing artist-run spaces here. I remember being here eight years ago 
and just being blown away. I mean, I was in, I stayed in Fitzroy at Gertrude Contemporary, and there was a sense that you could not throw a rock without hitting an artist-run space, and many of which had like really illustrious histories. And I think even coming here and experiencing that probably informed my uh, decision, which happened much later. We opened it in 2013 uh, to open the space in Mexico City. Um, but yeah, I guess we can just, I'm not gonna speak about every show. We can just kind of let the images scroll through. Um, so, let's see. Um, Lulu. <laughs> so Lulu, Lulu is a space I, I opened with Martin in, uh, in 2013 in Mexico City. It was, uh, I didn't move to Mexico City to open the space. Um, it was quite spontaneous. It just kind of happened through living there. Um, we initially opened the space in the living room of Martin's studio. So we literally inserted a white cube, which was these early images. You can see it um, in the living room. So like built floor, wall, ceiling. It's nine square meters, 100 square feet. So at the time, it was the smallest space in Mexico City. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, so much. Um, the basic idea, I think it was responding to, um, on my end, it was responding to a kind of personal challenge um, and also the context of the scene itself. Like when I first arrived in Mexico City, um, Mexico City does have this illustrious history of artist-run spaces, the most famous of which is La Panaderia, which was in Condesa in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, and eventually closed. Um, but by the time I arrived, there was kind of nothing going on. There was this one space which was really amazing called Preteen, run by this lunatic, uh, Gerardo Contreras. And I, I thought it was so amazing, um, this guy. And his program was like queer post-internet. So it was like really specific, you know? And it, it, it was like before people were even talking about post-internet, and he somehow queered it. It was just like really wonderful and strange. Um, and inspirational for us as well. Um, but otherwise, it was just like, felt like there were all these pop-up exhibitions where there was no curatorial concepts or it was more of an excuse for people to get together and drink mezcal than actually make um, exhibitions and think about and look at art. Um, and so we were out one night and we're like, why don't we open a space? Um, and I think from, from, from our scene, it was motivated also by the fact that he's a Mexican artist who had virtually no connection to Mexico. He, at the time, was exhibiting a lot in Europe and the United States, um, but he was totally unknown in Mexico. It was amazing. Um, and how much that has changed is also amazing. Since we opened the space, I think he's known totally in Mexico as one of the more significant artists of his generation. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's funny, it's like the way this project has evolved is that it just happened. Um, and then it has become defined um, and clarified through time. Like it wasn't like I, we opened it and we're like, this is how things are gonna function. This is how we're gonna uh, invite artists, you know, or that we're gonna paint the floor and it's gonna change. Um, with every exhibition, there are like things, and it's funny too, it's like um, there are times when I feel like I understand what it is more than others, 
Um, and like right now is one of the times where I feel like I understand it the least, um, which I think is a good thing, which I think means that it is this kind of ev organic evolving thing and that I, hopefully I still have things to learn from it as a curator. Um, over time, uh, I have developed a philosophy or how I think about this space. Um, uh, it's also expanded. We opened a second space on the street in Mexico City. Um, Max has been there. A few people in this room have been there. Um, the, the expansion uh, added a whole 12 square meters to the space. So now we have uh, 21 square meters or 240 square feet or probably about less than the bathroom in here. Um, to show some of the more interesting, I believe, international artists working uh, in the world today. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, and I think uh, throughout the project, like things like kind of um, mottos, I guess you could say, have become clear to me, like how to make this thing function. Um, uh, one, I think one of the most important ones is kind of my own insanity, uh, which in some, some ways feels very specifically American, especially after living in Europe. Um, when we opened the space, we didn't know what the model would be. We didn't know how we were gonna run it or pay for it or anything. Um, and we applied for funding. There are different places you can apply for funding for in Mexico, like Humex, Fonca, all sorts of things. We got none of it. They all said no which I respect, you know. I don't think project spaces should actually get funding. I think project spaces or artist-run spaces should be independent and the responsibility of their owners or directors, um, lest they become institutionalized, which is not interesting for the, the ecology or the ecosystem of a given art scene. Um, and so when we didn't get funding and we had our first show, we actually sold the work I don't even think we really knew the prices of the works. We weren't thinking about selling them, but it happened and we we're like, wow, that's amazing, you know? And that single sale, I think, paid for the whole show. Because um, we do, uh, we're fortunate to be in Mexico City um, where it is, uh, for better or for worse, a lot less expensive to run this kind of space. If we were in New York, things would be very different. Um, but we're in Mexico City and that, also comes with its own set of economic problems. I mean, it's not central. It's not New York or London or Berlin. Um, closest flight, I mean, I, I guess you guys would laugh at this, but the closest flight is, you know, Los Angeles is three and a half hours away, New York is five hours away, and compared to Europe, this is huge, you know? Compared to Australia, it's a joke, but... Um, but so it's like getting work there, getting artists, production is a little bit more challenging than it would be um, in certain places. But um, um, so in terms of like, you know, so, the, the, so to respond to that, um, it, basically uh, my craziness was that we just decided that we would, we would uh, make decisions, we would like, we would make decisions um, uh, or invite artists or like come up with projects and then find the money, which is the exact opposite of how Europe works. After living in Europe, I was in Europe for about 10 years. And in Europe, the way things function is like, we have X amount of euros, so we can do this. Um, 
and we did the exact opposite. We're like, we want to do a show with Manfred Pernice. How do we get the money, or how do we make this work? Um, and I think um, most of the time it works. Right now we're in a bit of trouble, uh, thanks to this philosophy. But most of the time we figure shit out. We get the shows there, um, and we. I think Martin and I as well were both kind of maniacs in that we're both perfectionists and it immediately became clear that after what we experienced to be all the informality of Mexico City or project run, uh, artist run spaces where they're just these kind of semi-derelict apartments where they don't even paint the walls, we're like, what if we make a perfect white cube? You know, what if we, we kind of take these very conventional um, conditions and insert them into an unconventional setting um, and we just make shows as perfect as possible and we also do it with whatever limited means we have so we've had shows I mean I think it's already scrolled by um, we've had shows with like a single work in the space and that's it and that's fine but it has to be perfect you know like if the artist says this is what I need we find the way to get that thing or as close as possible. The plinth is perfect, the walls are perfect, like everything is perfect. Like that's kind of Lulu's motto, it just has to be perfect. Um, and um, that is uh, in also in part uh, due to the fact that like, if you walk into a space that's nine square meters, it has to be perfect, you know what I mean? Because any imperfections stand out in such a small space. If you're in a space like this, you know, there's a lot more wiggle room, as it were. In Lulu, there's no wiggle room. Um, and I think that's an interesting challenge. Um, uh, another thing that's kind of become a philosophy of the way Lulu functions, um, and, uh, and Lulu, the way it functions as like, what is it? What is this space? Is it a gallery? Is it a hybrid project space? Is it a curatorial project? Um, is it an artist-run space? Um, it, I think it, it kind of willfully uh, and deliberately inhabits this gray area, um, which we've been trying to preserve almost since the beginning. I mean, it's been met with like a lot of confusion, like, uh, my sense in Australia and New Zealand is that things are a little bit more flexible. You also have these terms. What do you say? You say dealer gallery, and then you say, or maybe that's New Zealand, I can't remember. But I feel like things are a little bit more flexible. But in Europe and the United States, in general, there is, you know, it's like, oh, that's a commercial gallery over here. That's an artist-run space. This is an institution. Um, and I think at this point, uh, those are interesting parameters and categories, and I see them, I think they're useful insofar as like the separation of church and state is useful, but it's a myth, you know? So we're, we're kind of collapsing that myth and kind of playing with it at the same time. Um, and so uh, on, a, on a practical level, ever since that first sale, we were just like, you know what, we don't need to apply for funding, let's just like sell whenever we can, um, which we do. We participated in art fairs as well. Um, we've become regulars at Nada Miami, um, Material in Mexico City, 
and then occasionally we do another art fair, generally if we're invited for free. We've done Art Monaco, uh, we were invited for free. We did another one in Houston. Um, but uh, fortunately we've, we've been very lucky and most of the time that we do these, we sell almost everything and the economy comes back to Lulu and is uh, put into the production of catalogs, exhibitions, so on and so forth. So it's not a money-making venture. Like, we make no money. We definitely make no money. Um, right now we make, we just lose money. But, uh, but um, it's a labor of love. Um, and uh, so it, 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 it is this kind of hybrid. I mean, I speak about it and I've spoken about it in different uh, contexts as a hybrid nonprofit. Um, which is a, a funny uh, kind of contradictory model. Um, but, and, and the way that functions on a practical level is that when we invite an artist, we invite the artist, and then we explain to the artist that if they want to sell, um, we would like to sell. But it's not a condition of showing at Lulu. If they're not comfortable with having their work made commercially available in this context, that's fine or if their galleries are not comfortable with it, or what have you. So it's not a condition of it. Some, sale, uh, some shows are more commercial than others. Some, like our Yuri Kovanda show, well, actually, we sold a piece from that. I was amazed, but there, there, I mean, there are other shows where it's like, you know, nothing's going to happen. And then sometimes it does, and we just kind of get by. We manage. Um, so that's on a practical level. In terms of like the program and the way it functions, like my philosophy is, um, I, I kind of borrowed from uh, this uh, Fluxus artist composer, Lamont Young, one of his most famous compositions is, draw a straight line and follow it. I love this. So this is a work of art. Draw a straight, it's an instruction-based piece. Draw a straight line and follow it. And that has really been the philosophy of Lulu. Um, it's, easy in part because I'm in charge of programming, so you only have one person who's doing the programming. Um, uh, but there, there is this idea that um, it, Lulu is a kind of linear group exhibition. Like you could take the entire program from these nine or 21 square meters and, and insert the whole thing in a place like ACA and you would have a coherent exhibition. I'm not saying it would be a good exhibition, but I think it would be coherent. I think if you looked at the entire program, um, you kind of see how these things all fit together. And for me, some, as somebody who's uh, basically always been an independent curator, I think the only honest job, um, and I'm not even sure about that, that I've had, was at Flash Art as an editor in Milan for about a year and a half, from 2006 to 2008. Um, Otherwise, I've just been a, a gun for hire, independent curator, working all over, kind of parachuting in, being airlifted out, and not really developing a sense of continuity with a given scene, um, which is something that Martin and I have, like, really both of us have embraced, you know, as these kind of outsiders. Martin, an outsider in Mexico City, and me as this kind of, whatever, itinerant curator. Um, but this idea of building a program is like the most amazing thing, you know? And the, and the, and the, and the idea of building a program for me has really helped, um, or what's really helped is, or helped me understand it is this idea of cultural capital. Um, it sounds really ugly and negative, but I really think about it in a positive sense. And cultural capital um, 
is is something I think about a lot in you know uh, the way I function as a curator, as a writer, um, as um, somebody uses Instagram um, as a real tool, um, in that um, it's 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 something it's like this accrual of uh, of a kind of discursive validity. It's like every artist that we add to the program impacts every other artist who is shown in the program. Um, and w like starting the space, I remember we, we, we were pretty ambitious. I mean, we started with Johan Lempert, who at this time is much more famous now than he was then. But I remember like our third show, it was super ambitious. And I wanted this work by Willem de Roy. I'm not sure if you guys know who Willem de Roy is, but very important Dutch artist. He represented Holland with his ex-partner um, in the Venice Biennial, like he's one of the best teachers at Stichtschule in Frankfurt. Like it, I mean, it, it, like a giant. And um, and I remember I just like had to have this work by him for this show, and it you know I had to jump through a lot of hoops, and and it, and it was like one of these things where like I mean I could see Willem. I eventually met him and we became friends, and it's all good. But uh, but Willem was like, who are you? Where do you come from? You know, and I think that happens with everyone. Like when you're a young curator, like you, I mean, ideally, I think when you're a young curator, an emerging curator, you work with artists from your generation. I'm always suspicious of like these young curators who are like, I'm going to do a solo show with Gabriel Orozco. Be like, oh, why are you doing that? You know, because you love the work or because you want to hang on their coattails. And, um, but, uh, but you know, but there are certain instances. Um, so somebody like Willem, and it's like we finally do a show with him, and 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 the kind of byproduct of that. And this was not my intention. This was something I realized after. Was like you have Willem de Roy in your program, and you can work with whoever you want. You know, I go to Manfred Bernice. Actually, and Manfred Bernice is funny. When I invited him to do a show, what blew his mind um, was that we were we had planned a show with this guy Josef Dabernig. Um, who is, I think, the greatest living Austrian artist. And for Manfred is a giant. Like, when he found out we were, doing, we were working with Josef, he was like, hell yeah, I'll do whatever you want, you know? So, I mean, this is, that's, that's a very crude example of speaking about um, cultural capital, but it's, 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 this, it's, a, it's a kind of like accrual, like the way um, these things accrue and the way artists you've shown in the past will modify artists you've shown in the present and there's this kind of almost you know to use the terms of this exhibition like a reciprocal modification um and 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 something that builds you know mo probably more importantly than anything something that actually grows and develops and becomes this thing that is larger than itself it's not just about the single artist but it's about an entire program and the program itself um impacts its local scene um, in certain ways, positively or negatively or however, but it's this idea that there is a kind of line. And I think, um, and it's funny that I'm gonna talk about this, I don't have much more time, but uh, I, I think I, I, I kind of learned this idea of you know, draw a straight line and follow it from Contemporary Art Daily, right? I'm sure you guys know this blog or website, Contemporary Art Daily. Um, which I think is one of the more influential uh, platforms uh, on a 
you know, on a literal and conceptual level um, that I've encountered over the past 10 years. I'm not sure how old Contemporary Daily is. I think they're only like seven or eight years old, um, maybe 10. But anyhow, I think them, I think, I think like, the, I think in, in some ways, like the secret of contemporary art is almost located in this um, blog, which some people, you either love it or you hate it. You know what I mean? Um, and, um, and I think it's there because for a number of reasons. One is that um, uh, they have a straight line. They have an identity. It's like, you know, when you see a show on Contemporary Daily, most of the time you're like, oh yeah, of course, that fucking show, like this makes sense here. Um, and, and I think that's really smart, you know what I mean? Because they have, it's not that they're, uh, I mean, those guys are, they're a smart group of guys but they have their own specific taste um, and they are very much interested in what is contemporary. Um, so that's a criterion, but at the same time, it's like, it's, it's their thing, it's their identity, and you, 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 you kind of know what you're gonna encounter. I think another thing that they've really tapped into um, and demonstrated, which is important, is this idea of consistency. Like they publish every day, no matter what. They do something every day, no matter what. You know you can always go there and encounter this specific thing every day. And this is like, for me, this is like some secret which is embedded in the internet. Um, and these are things I've thought about in the program, not like making shows for Contemporary Art Daily, but this idea um, of being consistent, drawing a straight line, um, and also, uh, just like a couple more minutes, I guess. Um, drawing a straight line and then, you know, and, and sticking to that line because it's like those lines that you draw as a curator or a gallerist or what have you, um, which create real friction. You know what I mean? It's like people, it's like it doesn't matter if people like it or not, you know? People don't have to like it. People, but it's, it, it, they can, it can be something that they can oppose you know, in a worst case scenario, um, by drawing that line and sticking to it, people can be like, oh yeah, Lulu, that sucks, you know? But it's this thing, you know? It's like this real thing in time and space um, that has real trajectory and it's like more than itself. Um, so I think those are things that are important. Um, and, uh, and I like, you know, and it's also something I think about, uh, uh, it's also something I think about in terms of, of Instagram. Um, I'm a, for better or for worse, I'm a chronic Instagram user. I think this is uh, a kind of, uh, I guess I'm addicted to it like most people. It's, um, but I think it's a really interesting platform in contemporary art that, uh, you know, Contemporary Daily has kind of like, of course, beaten us too in many ways and that like, I think most of the discursive production in contemporary art at this point happens through images. Um, I think we all read a lot less than we used to. Um, we think about art principally through images. Um, and me as a curator, I do my so-called research uh, in many different ways. I mean, I've discovered artists on Instagram. I think our current show so this guy, Matt Poeski, and the first time I saw it was on Instagram, and then I was like, what is this? And 
And then, I, of course, I, I, I find artists in exhibitions, art fairs, through talking to other artists, curators, colleagues. I mean, there are many different ways, but Instagram is one of them. It's like a, it's a valid platform, and and I. And, and it's funny, like when I first got involved in Instagram, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna do this shit. Like I'm gonna do this, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of apply the same logic that Contemporary Art Daily does, which is align and consistently, that's it. You know, these basic principles. Um, and, and, and I wanna see what happens with that. Like what, what can that generate? Um, as opposed to pictures of people's cats and babies and what they had for lunch and this kind of thing, you know? Um, what if it's just this one thing? And the thing, and the thing um, which is important for me about this kind of uh, methodology, I guess you could say, is, is this idea of accruing cultural capital, not so it becomes a source of power but so it can be redistributed to artists. You know, that's the most important thing in the end. It's not like, um, it's not about me getting into the main fair at Basel or I don't know, uh, getting into any kind of power or pole position. It's about like what happens as a curator if you like use these very banal, conventional, everyday means of uh, communication uh, social media, um, and it's something that also informs the way we do, we document our exhibitions. This is a little parenthesis really quickly. Um, I feel like I should state this in terms of like how Lulu communicates, but our primary audience is international. Um, we're always thinking in international terms, but this is the contradiction. We make our exhibitions for whoever comes to see them. So we want our exhibitions to be seen in the space but the discussion we're having goes beyond our local context. Um, it's like really, that I mean, Lulu's trying to have a discussion with you guys, you know what I mean? As much as people in, I don't know, uh, Estonia or wherever. Um, and so documentation plays a major role in that. Like there's almost two exhibitions. There's the exhibition in the space itself, and then there's the documentation of the exhibition. So, but the most important one is the exhibition. All right, end parentheses. Um, so this idea of, uh, yeah, like, you know, it's not, it, 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 it's about like accruing this cultural capital so that artists can benefit from it. And I think they do, you know, I think like I've, I've had numerous instances where like I post uh, the work of a young artist and they, uh, end up in an exhibition, or I have a gallerist colleague, or a collector, or what have you, and they contact me, and they're like, "What is this? This is amazing," um, and like, and and that's 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 great, you know. What I mean, that's like a great thing that these, you know, addictive social media, like, you know, kind of stupefying uh, tools can do, you know. Um, and I think the same thing with Lulu. It's like, it's like my dream, like one of my models for sure is Matthew Higgs, uh, English curator, artist based in New York, director of White Columns. Um, and Matthew is like, he's a monster. Like this guy, I don't know how he does it, but he has launched 
so many young artists. I mean, this guy must just do studio visits nonstop. Um, it's, I mean, he's like not human, but, um, and it's like there's so many artists who like owe their careers, at least the beginning of their careers, to this guy. And I, and I love this idea that like I can create or co-create a site where um, there is this kind of, you know, this authored uh, cultural capital um, which can impact an artist's career and kind of help them along in different ways. Um, so, I mean, there's more to it than that, but um, those were some of the things that I wanted to discuss today, and I think I'm pretty much out of time. So thank you. Thanks, Chris. Um, any questions for Chris? There's one over there. Hi, Chris. Um, so I'm assuming that there are a lot of uh, curators in the making in the room. I know that I study curatorship and a couple of people here from my course. Do you have some advice that you could give us? Um, aside from draw a straight line and follow it? <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Like just to get going? Um, yeah, I mean, um, I think, um, one, one piece of advice is like, just make shit happen, you know? Excuse my language, but like, it's not about, I mean, it's, you know, I've never had a job and, uh, and I managed to stay pretty busy. Um, and I think I have a fair amount of colleagues from that tends to be the case. I mean, personally, I, I'm a writer. I started writing first. Um, and then I was an editor, and I, I still I kind of occasionally work as a contributing editor. Um, so I write, I run Lulu, I curate exhibitions. Um, but all of these hats that I wear kind of inform each other. I have colleagues who, who uh, kind of supplement um, their independent curatorial practices through like advising collections, um, others teach. Um, but basically, my, my advice is like, um, really don't wait for the job or the position. Just like, kind of, uh, yeah, just kind of make it happen. Like, just open a space called uh, Lola or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just like, it's like, it's, it's, I, I, I think we're in this, we live in this extraordinary moment where it's really possible to be totally, um, I mean, more and more every day to be totally in charge of the means of production because the means of production now are communication. It's like we're even, I mean, like even art, art form is no longer hegemonic, you know? It's like we're witnessing the fall of art forum. Like even as I like started as a curator, there was this idea as if, if you could write for art forum, you were like, you, you, you fucking made it, you know what I mean? And like art forum now is just like a bunch of perverts or whatever. It's like, <laughs> who are those guys? You know, I mean, it's still an important forum, but it's not. It's no longer hegemonic. You know, like there is no there is no hegemony anymore, except for maybe Instagram. I don't know, but you know, it's just like it's like the means of production are the means of communication, and they're like 
They're available to everyone, um, more or less. Anyone else? Um, I was just wondering, you spoke a lot about the um, logo being a perfect white cube, but in fact it um, seems to have a coloured floor that changes a lot, and if you could speak to that okay. at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny, I didn't... One thing I really wanted to talk about and I wanted to end on was, uh, was, uh, was joy. You know, joy as a kind of experience in... Uh, exhibitions and art um, and I think that's uh, that's that's something that's become really really important to me in Mexico um, and also after living in France where France is like everything is hyper discursive intellectual um, for a while there there was a sense that in order to like properly experience an exhibition you had to have a kind of uh, MA in French theory and and there was like no fucking joy, you know what I mean? It was just like kind of punishing. Um, and Mexico, sometimes I get the feeling that there's like this almost Catholic approach to exhibitions where people go to exhibitions to kind of like repent or be absolved of their sins, you know? It's almost as if they're flogged um, through like these hyper-conceptual, socio-politically engaged, um, presentations um, and I think like you know I don't know I, I I mean what a wonderful idea of like going to see an exhibition and like being really touched you know feeling joy experiencing like a little bit of heartbreak and then happiness and experiencing this thing where it's just like wow what the fuck is that that's amazing you know how did they make that um, this wonderful thing in the world um, I personally think that uh, art kind of represents the best of people, like the best of what like uh, we as like a kind of plague upon the earth are capable of. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm getting to, your, to that. I just wanted to add that. But I think the, the floors, I mean, I, I, I like to think that there's a lot of joy. I mean, a lot of people go to exhibitions at Lulu and they kind of make fun of us in a way. It's like, oh, there's so much joy. I mean, it's. I mean, we just did a, a a biennial about fruit, you know, and it was like funny and weird. Um, but the floors, um, the floors. I think there's there's an element of that. And then actually, the floors came from Kate Newby. We did a show with Kate early on. I think it was our, in our second year. And Kate was like, "I'm going to paint the floor blue." I think it's in this presentation. I don't know if it's still going, but uh, um, and. I was like, okay, that's amazing. What a great idea. Because our floors, if you look closely, they're floating. Um, there's a kind of gutter around both of them. And the reason for this, this is Martin's idea. We didn't want to have the structure of the space visible. So there are no plug sockets. There's nothing. Everything's tucked under the floor. So we have this floating floor gutter. Um, and Kate came and she painted her floor. And then after that, we had a show by, um, we had a show by, actually, I think it was back here. We had a show by uh, Lisa Oppenheim. Lisa should be, uh, it's kind of early on, but Lisa is a great, oh, there she is. So here's Kate with this wonderful blue floor. And then Lisa came and did a show and she had these kind of terracotta uh, wall sculptures and we decided to paint the floor terracotta. 
And Lisa was like, you know what, you should do this. And I was like, that's a great idea, actually. Um, and so here's a beautiful show by Michael E. Smith. And Michael wanted a kind of fleshy pink, which turned out to be Pepto-Bismol pink, which was even better than fleshy pink. It makes total sense with his work. And, and, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's funny. It's like a way of, um, it's a way of making each ex exhibition totally individual with very limited means. I mean, because it's nine square meters. It's like, there's only so much you can do, which I love, like this challenge of like the, the kind of almost epigrammatic, this intimacy. Um, intimacy is a very important uh, part of what Lulu is. But I also, what I really love about it as well is that it kind of has a way of, um, that's the first millennial. Here you go, this beautiful Ian Kerr show where he, this kind of crazy yellow. Um, and it, uh, it has a way of making everything more plastic. It has a way of underlining and emphasizing the plasticity of the program and the presentations, because Lulu's program is very plastic. It's very much about making, it's about materials. It's even to a certain, it's almost modernist in its medium specificity. I mean, I'm contradicting myself here, because Ian's work is about painting, but it's a very expanded notion of painting. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, that's, that's really, I mean, I often say this, like our program is about thinking through materials, artists who think through materials. And I think the painted floor, the colored floor becomes um, an instance or, or element of that. So yeah, it's a long answer to a little question. <laughs> Hi, um, I have two questions. You can answer them in as much detail as you like, I suppose. Uh, my first question is, you spoke about the scene in, in Europe and you spoke about the scene when you moved to Mexico uh, and you could feel, it, it sounds to me like you had a sense of authority with what you could see. So you said, you know, there was almost like that Catholic feeling where it really, there wasn't much joy there. Sometimes I feel like there is so much going on with, with wherever I visit, whether it's Melbourne or not, that it's almost hard to define what's actually there because there's just so much of it there and it's it's, to even be able to sort of tie something together. Yeah. I'm not really sure how to do that. Are you going to events and exhibitions all the time? Are you, you know, do you get tired of that? Like how, how much do you sort of have to get out there to actually see and to be able to, yeah, to create those ties? And my second question is, um, at this point, what are your career goals from now? Ah, uh, career goals. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> um, well, to answer the first question, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, contemporary art is like, it's, it's full of maniacs, you know? Uh, it's like, we're all, we're all kind of, or at least my colleagues, it's like, we're all, we're, we have like the sickness. It's like all we think about or talk about. Um, and I don't look as much at, as, as I used to, and a big part of that is just because I'm too busy. I mean, I try, and I try to keep abreast of what's going on, but I think um, as you kind of progress uh, as a professional, you start to develop a discussion with certain peers and colleagues. And right now, I'm, I have a pretty clear sense of who my interlocutors are. 
um, and my interlocutors are, you know, in Dusseldorf, Tokyo, Mexico City, Buenos Aires, you know, and it's like we were kind of all, it's like, or Brussels or, or in Paris, it's like we have, you know, it's like that's my group of, it's like my crew, you know, like we're, we have this discussion going and of course you try and stay abreast of other discussions, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, you kind of, I mean, it's, 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 it's insane how much we're expected to know. You know, it's like you listen to sports geeks, you know, and like, and sometimes I feel like we have this, uh, it's like you hear, you hear sports geeks and they're like, yeah, this soccer player or baseball player is on this team and they, they kind of know all these statistics. And it's like the art world is like that, like times 10. You know what I mean? It's like, it's insane. It's like somebody can name a gallery and most of my, myself and my colleagues can be like, oh yeah, this is their program. And this is where that program is shown. And these are the curators who've worked in that program. And then they've had articles in these magazines. And you, I mean, it's like, it's like what you're expected to know is just, it's like we're brain surgeons or something. I don't know. Um, but it's not that important. <laughs> uh, um, and then uh, to answer your second question, I'm, uh, I'm both um, maybe a little bewildered and happy to report that I have no career goals. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you, Chris. It's, it's been wonderful to have you in, in Melbourne. And um, one more, okay. Uh, just with the internet and where everything is moving, where do you see your curatorial practice moving? And also, do you think that your impact in nationalism purely based on you being located in Mexico? The, the what internationalism? Like, do you think that you're impacting the conversation of nationalism because of where you're currently located? Um, I'm not sure I understand the second part of that question. Is it a question about internationalism or the way I'm thinking about nationalism? I hope so. I hope, uh, I hope I'm expanding it. You know, I hope I'm expanding it beyond the question of what it is to be Mexican. I mean, I hope, I hope like the, the kind of impact that Lulu has on the national Mexican context is like, it's, it, 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 it shifts the question away from questions of nationality to questions of art, you know, like, and I mean that's and that's a big discussion as well. Um, in terms of like you know where I want to go, it's funny. It's like uh, you know the fucking the logic of contemporary art is that you you know it's very post Fordist in the sense that like you have to get your, your next position has to be better than the last one. If you're a director of an institution, the next one has to be bigger than the last one. Or if you do a biennial, the next biennial has to be bigger, and then eventually you have to be you have to direct document. Or there's just like this kind of absurd expansionist and very capitalistic logic, you know. And that's something that Martin and I really try and resist in Lulu because we're invited by art fairs all the time, and even like Nada, like Nada is constantly be like, you should take a bigger booth to prove that you're growing. 
and be like, I don't know if that proves that we're growing, first of all. Um, incidentally, we're broke. <laughs> um, and, and, like, and we don't necessarily think about growth in those terms. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's hard to resist that. I think like, um, it's like, I don't know, I still like this idea of just like, you know, drawing our little, our, our little straight line and following it and like seeing what, I mean, it's like, it's absurd. Like I've, you know, Lulu's 21 square meters. And I, I occasionally, I've met people like in parts of the world and, um, and they're like, oh, Lulu, um, you're Lulu? You know, like they know what this thing is. And, uh, and that's, that's amazing. Um, it's not so much about it being known, but it's about like, for me, Lulu's one of the in, like intrinsic challenges and most rewarding aspects of it is doing as much as possible with as little as possible. You know, like just keeping it simple and seeing what you can do with that. I mean, sometimes you can, I think you can really have a major impact um, and you can, you can impact the discourse, I guess, with like almost nothing. If you, if you draw a straight line and you're consistent, you know, but so I guess those are my career goals at this point. <laughs> not just to go into too much debt, <laughs> but, yeah. We have one more question. Chris, just on a related subject, um, last year you wrote that text in Moose on the theory of the minor, and then today you've been speaking about literally a minor space, like a very small scale space, and then the, the recent Lulu biennial is really like a micro biennial, and the most recent subject was um, low-hanging fruit, or fruit, which itself is a minor genre of painting. Um, but you were um, in your essay on the minor, you know, celebrating the idiosyncratic and the small and the particular and the peculiar. Um, would you like to reflect on that at all in relationship to your curatorial practice with Lulu, but also the way that you perhaps engage artists within that space? Um, yeah, it's... Uh yeah, the, this is an essay I wrote last year from Moose, and um, I think it's kind of my manifesto. It's also Lulu's manifesto. If you guys haven't read it, uh, I've written a lot of things, much of which I'm ashamed of. I'm not ashamed of this piece. I'm actually kind of proud of it. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to read it, please do. Some of the artists in this show are actually also in that. Um, and I think virtually every artist who's been shown at Lulu could be in that as well. Uh, just Google my name and Theory of the Minor. It's on Moose's website. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's like, that was like one of those instances where like I wrote this thing that I'd been thinking about a lot and it helped me understand what Lulu was because Lulu is still kind of this monster that I don't entirely understand, um, which means for me it kind of has a life of its own, which is very important. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, um, I think Lulu is a minor space. Lulu, Lulu embraces this sense of, of being minor. And um, the way I define minor is kind of complex and not really possible to do now, which is why I encourage you to read this text. Um, but essentially, 
uh, it's about the art. It's always about the art. It's always about um, the experience of seeing art in the space in Lulu. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and I think if this hasn't been clear, I think especially in terms of that text and the major, and I would even say that this exhibition is minor. I mean, and this exhibition takes some major positions and reads them in minor ways. Like I think Francis Elise is a major artist, but he's read here in a, from a very minor perspective. But I think often the major is strategic. The major instrumentalizes um, the major uh, kind of hammers things into their lowest common denominator, such as nationality or nationalism. Um, and it's super strategic and even to a certain degree opportunistic. And I think what's been important, you know, vis-a-vis -vis that at Lulu is that we're not strategic. Um, we don't make, we don't show artists because we think it's gonna get us something or get us somewhere. It's not about using or instrumentalizing artists. Often we'll show artists like Ian Kerr. Um, we're always thinking about timing. Timing is something that can never be underestimated, I think. Um, but we'll show somebody like Ian Kerr, who at a moment in his career when like nobody's talking about him, Ian was uh, somebody who was super important for me when I first started working in art. He was in the sixth Berlin Biennial, which is actually, I think, the only good biennial I've ever seen, um, which was curated by Massimilian Joni, Ali Subotnik, and Maurizio Catalan. This was 2006. But Ian was also in the second manifesto, or third, I can't remember, Lyon Biennial. I mean, he's somebody who had quite a trajectory. Um, but uh, his, for one reason or another, uh, his star had kind of fallen. And it was just like, okay, this is perfect. You know, it's a perfect moment to like work with this artist and think about painting from this perspective. Um, so in a way, it's almost not strategic at all. You know, it's not like showing Ian Kerr is gonna get us some shit. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not like that. Um, so it's like, uh, I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways to think about the minor, but um, it's like, I mean, you can think about it literally also in terms of the size of the space, you know, we're, we're in this moment with like this kind of ludicrous expansionist logic where Gagosian has what, 15 galleries around the world and each one is bigger than the last and Zwerner is like right behind him and Pace and, you know, and then you have franchise institutions like now the Louvre and Pompidou after Google, I mean, it's just like, you know, um, and it's like, uh, what happens when you do the exact opposite, you know, but just as rigorously. So, anyhow. Please join me in thanking Chris Sharp again. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.